Welcome to episode 62 of the PharmExec podcast. I'm Elaine Quilici, Senior Editor of PharmExec Magazine and your podcast host. PharmExec Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the C-suite. On this week's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Kurt Orlovsky, CEO of PAI. Kurt is here to shed some light on the future of the pharma supply chain and how the U.S. needs to rethink some of its current practices. Let's take a quick break from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Kurt. What if you had limitless access to customer insights, accelerated timelines, and set fees? At True Serum Network, we're fueled by connections in virtually every area of healthcare as part of MJH Life Sciences. The result? Audience-fed creative and more powerful content in less time. True Serum Network, releasing what's real. Find out more at truesterumntwk.com. Hello, podcasters. Today I'll be interviewing Kurt Orlovsky, CEO of PAI. Kurt is here to discuss what the pharmaceutical supply chain might look like post-COVID-19 and how companies can prepare for that. Thanks for joining us today, Kurt. Thanks, Elaine. Happy to be together. So you've been involved in the supply chain of pharma for more than 25 years. How has the system changed during that time? I think it's changed in a number of ways. One is, and I don't think this is a surprise to anyone, it's become far more global. Companies from all over the world, from all regions of the world, perhaps unthinkable before, are supplying drug product and active ingredient and starting materials into the United States uh, in great quantities. So it truly has become a, a global supply chain. In addition, the distribution system in the United States has changed in, in those 25 years. It used to be many distributors this, uh, in many different chains of drugstores and the like. And that has consolidated down dramatically to where three of the large distributors and the wholesalers in the United States account for about a little bit over 80% of the, of the drug supply that, that goes out from them. You know, generic drugs have also grown greatly. 20 years ago, it was far less than 50% of the dosage in the United States was generic, and now it's, a, it's approaching 90% generic, which also has, has led to a, a lot of change in cost savings, certainly in the United States. And, and I think finally, uh, you see a lot more science regulation applied by the FDA today versus 20, 25 years ago, far greater testing, far higher uh, GMP requirements, and far more consistent application thereof across the drug supply chain, I think has really raised the level of the quality and the efficacy of drugs in the United States in, the, in, in that time. So yeah, in, in 20 years, 25 years, we've seen mammoth change. When it comes to raw materials, active pharmaceutical ingredients, and even finished generic product, many manufacturers are located in regions that have been hard hit by COVID-19, such as China or India, even Italy. How has that affected the supply chain recently? I think firstly, you have to know how much of, this, of the drug supply comes from those locations and from, from all over the world. So uh, currently, far more than 50% of the of the dosage to drug dosage that is prescribed and given in the United States is made overseas. Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and the Far East, China and India are probably the, the bulk of it. So 
in addition to that, uh, over 70% of the active ingredient that goes into those drugs is manufactured ex-US in those same locations, about 30% of it coming from China and India, and less than 30% of all of the active ingredient is made here in the United States. So we're far more reliant those places that have been hit hard, like China and India, uh, than, than we, we've ever been before. That said, the, I don't believe that the full effects of COVID-19 and, and some of the, the shutdowns uh, that you've seen and the supply chain issues that you've seen coming especially out of the hard hit areas of China, India uh, and, and Western Europe, I'm not sure that we've seen it yet. Uh, the supply chain is long and, and many of the pharma companies here in the United States hold, hold some safety stock. So there really haven't been any great shortages yet or interruptions to the U.S. supply chain yet. But given the length of time it takes from, let's say, ordering uh, the starting material through actually producing the product, it can be up to six, nine months. Um, so I suspect that while there have been a few shortages to date, we're only going to really see the effects of, of COVID-19 in the second half of this year as, as another COVID wave may hit us and even moving into, into next year. So were there any warning signs about relying on global companies before this pandemic? And if so, what has pharma done to address that issue to date? I think there have been a number of warning signs, not necessarily warning signs that would have said, well, gee, uh, you could have shortages if there's a global pandemic. That, I don't know that anybody could have predicted that. But when you, when you look backwards in time, you see probably three main issues or signs. One is uh, over the course of the last year, there's been a lot of talk and news coverage about the quality of the uh, FDA inspections. Uh, especially in India and China, books have been written about it. And, and it's much, much harder for the FDA to do thorough in, uh, inspections in other parts of the world where they have to announce the inspections early uh, or really before they go. And, and just sheer distance and language changes make, make it difficult for the FDA to do a quality inspection in other parts of the world. And it has led to not every company uh, in other parts of the world uh, being non-compliant, but but certainly enough. And uh, one example of that we can see is the uh, the heparin contamination issue that we saw almost probably 10 years ago now, where contaminated heparin from a Chinese plant uh, came into the United States and and, and really injured some people. Um, it, it's very hard with that much drug product uh, and and so many you know literally thousands of manufacturers for the FDA inspection system uh, and, the, and the rules of GMP to keep up with that. And I think another, an, another warning sign could be the, the, the growing middle class and the economic prosperity that we have seen in, in some of these other countries, especially China and, and, and India, where perhaps 20 years ago, the, the most profitable or the best market to focus their production, their pharma production on would have been the United States. And, and with the economic growth in those regions, uh, in other parts of the world, uh, the United States isn't always the first priority. I, I really think that the length of the supply chain and the growing economies in other parts of the world have, as we've seen that happen, probably probably a little bit of foresight would have could have been applied, and we could have seen where we are today. 
So as COVID-related drugs get approved, will they take manufacturing priority over other, especially non-essential drugs? And how will that further stress the supply chain? That is a big concern that I, I think about. Um, and, you know, you can look at a, let's back up and put it in context for a second. Firstly, there's, even with all of this manufacturing capacity, there is still a limited amount of manufacturing capacity, especially when you look at different classes of drugs. Our company, uh, PAI, we have capacity to make a lot of oral liquid medications, but no capacity and no capability to make injectable products. And, and that's pretty true across most of manufacturing. So when you, when you think about, for instance, this coming fall, uh, should there, or, or whenever a, a vaccine is available for, for COVID-19, that vaccine is, is a doubling effort in the sense that not only would you likely need a flu shot, a flu vaccine, um, but there also would be a, a separate, I'm assuming, COVID-19 vaccine. So now you need double the production to make two vaccines, probably with all of the, not probably, with the amount of, of coverage this global pandemic has, uh, you would think more people than ever would, would, would line up for those, sh- those shots. So I, I think you see just in vaccine production alone, um, more than a doubling of the requirement that you saw or even considered a year ago. And the, the U.S. government has recently announced contracts with, uh, with some parties here in the U.S. to, to build larger vaccine production capabilities. Uh, now, whether that'll be big enough to cover a, a global pandemic or a pandemic scale issue like COVID remains to be seen. I think a, a second issue could also be if, you're, if a drug is manufactured in a certain country, primarily there, what happens when that country's usage of it is greater than, than it itself can supply? Will, it, will, it then, will that country then want to export or be able to export to another country, even if, even if they want to, and, and not look at the needs of their own people? So I, I think COVID-19 has changed a lot of things uh, around this prioritization and around the way we view capacity to respond to future uh, pandemics. And I, I don't know that we've seen yet the full impact of it. And, and it will be very interesting to watch and to see how fast once the, once the COVID-19 vaccine is developed or any, any other drugs that, that may be needed to treat it or to cure it, um, how fast the, the global supply chain can meet the global demand. My suspicion is that it will be slower than we want it to. Are there any additional supply chain concerns that people should pay attention to moving forward? Well, again, if we look at history, and we, we can learn a little bit from history, I think one thing you see is in the United States, for instance, for the last at least 10 years now that I've, that I've been watching and seeing it, there have been a shortage of injectable products, really old, high volume, but very necessary injectable, sterile injectable products that are primarily used uh, in hospital. And the reason, there's many reasons for those shortages, but among some of those reasons are, you know, increasing regulation, increasing standards that these manufacturers have to raise their level to. And also the competing capacity requirements for those manufacturers to make other new drugs, perhaps more profitable drugs to be able to cover 
uh, their own internal costs and, and return some level of profit. So I think that we have to be careful just assuming that moving forward, companies will apply their capacity to whatever the drug requirement is when there are other capacity concerns and there are limit or other capacity usages or other usages for that capacity across multiple product lines that these companies may have. I, I think a second question too is there's a lot of talk about building up a a national stockpile of these of these drugs and, and significantly increasing the capacity of drugs. And I, I think a question comes to mind, a financial concern comes to mind is, is who pays for that? You know, it's a little bit different with PPE uh, because in many cases you can stockpile PPE and it's, it's going to last for five or 10 or years or longer. Pharmaceutical supply chain, uh, most drugs, if not all, have an expert. And generally a year and a half to two years is as long as, as the products last. And, and if they're not used, they're, they have to, have to be discarded. Um, so, you know, who pays for that? And, and how does, clearly the companies can't, can't uh, take the risk of that. Uh, I'm not sure whether the government wants to or, or, or even, even the customers and the patients would be willing to. So I, I think you have a, a, a real question as to how much capacity do we want and how much are we willing to pay for that uh, capacity as a, as a country, as a society, as individuals? Um, those, are, those are some real concerns, uh, some real things we need to be talking about. Because U.S. companies might want to rethink where their drugs are manufactured. Does that burden fall greater on pharma, the government, or someone else? I really wish that as, as pharma, you know, as the, as the players in the pharma supply chain, manufacturers, uh, distributors, even the health care providers, I wish that it was a problem that we could solve ourselves. But I, I, I really believe it's, it's, it's too big for anyone, any one of us, uh, any one of us to tackle because it, it really does cut across the three. And the way I, I would divide it I would say that, you know, clearly the government, um, you know, the FDA and probably uh, the leader in this, uh, but of, co- of course, certainly other government agencies, they have to weigh in on it uh, for, as far as what, you know, from a, a national pandemic to a global pandemic, what, what are we looking, who are we looking to protect? How much coverage are we looking to have? And what is the greater uh, social requirement and need. I, I don't. I, I don't think anyone but the government is really is big enough or in a in a place to handle something like that. You certainly need industry, the pharmaceutical uh, and drug supply industry, to to be very open about how much capacity it has and, and what the length and cost of its supply chain looks like, uh, and what other you know shareholder needs and 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 customer needs that it has. You know, and then I think you have the healthcare system you know, hospitals and doctors and, and pharmacy chains and folks like that, all the way down to the patient. You know, how much coverage does a, would a patient want to have? I, I don't think most patients today currently have a stockpile of drugs in their house in, in case they, they would be diagnosed with COVID uh, or with some other disease. But perhaps that, that may be something that they're thinking about or would, or would want to have in the future. Um, and so all of this comes together in a way that I, I think a broad coalition across the three, government, pharma, and the healthcare system, really need to come together in a coordinated way and, and discuss it, and define the rules and the objectives, and then 
uh, work together um, to to share in 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 the costs and in the responsibilities of of achieving whatever the goals are that we set. And and the one thing that I think we're all not I think the one thing I know we're all aligned with is is the health and the security of our people and of and of the system. Uh, so you know we're all aligned around a common cause. The key is to bring us together in such a way and lead us to the right outcome. And I think that's our challenge uh, moving forward as a country. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Kurt. We appreciate hearing your thoughts about how things need to change looking forward toward the future of pharma supply chain. Thanks for your time. I was happy to share my thoughts. What if you had limitless access to customer insights? accelerated timelines, and set fees. At True Serum Network, we're fueled by connections in virtually every area of healthcare as part of MJH Life Sciences. The result? Audience-fed creative and more powerful content in less time. True Serum Network, releasing what's real. Find out more at truestherumntwk.com. And now it's time for this week's leadership tips from pharma execs. Hi, I'm Kurt Orlovsky, CEO of PAI, and my leadership tip is this. Listen to your stakeholders. Really listen to them. Don't assume you know what they need or know what they're feeling, especially with the challenges we're facing in our country now. Listen to your customers, your employees, your stakeholders. Reaching out to them now and listening to them will set you apart. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's Farm Exec podcast. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the PharmExec staff is working on. Remember, you can always find us on the web at PharmExec.com, on Twitter at PharmExec, on Instagram at PharmExecutive, and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of PharmExec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email editorial director Lisa Henderson at lhenderson at mjhlifesciences.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at tbaker at mjhlifesciences.com. 